So this morning we're going to continue our sermon series from the book of Thessalonians. I gotta get that straight, it's only been the tenth sermon I've preached on it. Uh, this morning, in connection to what we're going to talk about and preach, I'm going to preach about from 1 Thessalonians, we're going to open our Bibles to the book of Luke. Luke is a gospel, one of the gospel writers telling about the story of Christ. And we're going to actually get to the end of Christ's life, um, near the end before he ascends, after he rose from the dead. And just before we enter into the story of these people who walk with Jesus to a town called Emmaus, I just want to share with you that it's very striking in Scripture that not only... Uh, does Jesus in this um, story, this historical story, this real story, allow them to, to meet him? Which is amazing in itself. It's an unbelievable story. But what's also very amazing in this story is that he opens scripture with them and tells them and shows them that scripture, the whole of scripture, the whole of the Bible is all about him. He does it in such a beautiful way. He just opens up scripture to them. This is kind of like a, an Advent sermon because what he gives them is this opportunity for them to realize that the prophets and, and, and the law and everything that's written in the Old Testament, all of that point to the one who's walking with them, who came, born to the Virgin Mary, walked on earth, died the death of all deaths, rose from the dead, and now is walking to Emmaus. I'm Emmaus. It's an unbelievable story. But as we are in the Advent season right now, it's good. It's good to reflect on, on who Christ is. And he does that by sharing this story, this, this journey with the, 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 the people going to Emmaus. And so we're going to pick it up in um, Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. There we find the word of the Lord. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked among them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, uh, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, here it comes, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's why it's an Advent sermon. 
As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as, it, as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then, then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and they said, it's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. an awesome story. I hope you agree with me. The theme for this sermon now, in connection to our text, is living between the advents of Christ. And I just want to share why I, I, I called it that theme before we open 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You understand that this is the season of Advent, and the church typically now, for the last number of hundreds of, hundreds of years now, has, has commemorated and celebrated the coming of our Savior, the incarnation of Christ. We spend time in these four weeks preparing for his, his, the celebration of his birth. We look at prophecies and promises that are all fulfilled in his coming. But you understand and I understand that we live after the first advent. We live between the advents. Paul is very, very clear that the church in Thessalonica um, needs to be prepared uh, for Christ's second coming. And typically, the church before the 1500s or 1800s really celebrated the advent of Christ thinking about his second coming. And we should too. We live in this in-between period of Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And the church has been in this period for now 2,000 years. And what's characteristically Paul in the book of Thessalonica is to say, now because we know that Christ is coming, we need to be ready the whole book, you could say, the whole letter to the church is a call to readiness. It's a call to preparedness. Are you, Church of Jesus Christ, prepared for the second coming of Christ? He will come, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, like a thief in the night. There we have a text. It's going to come up. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. He will come in a thief in the night, and then it follows when people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. He's coming. He's coming quickly. And the church must be ready. And what he does at the end of the book is just kind of pile up all of these commands to encourage the church to be ready. Back-to-back -back exhortation. Back-to-back -back commands. Think about this. Remember this. Don't forget this. Do this. You know, it's something like, you know, as a parent, when you leave, or as parents, when you leave your babysitter, and you leave your precious children in the hands of this babysitter, and you give them the long list of things that they have to remember before you go, because you want to protect your children. Don't forget to test the, the, the milk before you give it to the baby. Make sure it's the right temperature, and, and don't forget to turn the lights off, and the, baby will, the child will probably need to go to sleep, and this child goes to sleep at this time, and this child goes to sleep at this time, and don't forget to clean the washrooms and renovate the kitchen. You know, the whole long list of things that the babysitter is concerned about so that that list is left with the babysitter. 
Jesus, uh, Paul is deeply concerned for the church of Thessalonica. And he's concerned as a father is to, to his children. He wants what's best for them. And so these exhortations are done and said in love to encourage them to walk in holiness before a holy God until the day that Jesus returns. That's what we have here. And we're going to pick it up now because we've already had one sermon on this. We're going to pick it up at verse 16. Um, my friend Cornelius kind of joked with me and laughed at me because I said I was hoping to preach from verse 16 all the way down to verse 24. And then this morning I said, I think I'm only going to stop at verse 17. So um, I'm only going to preach the first point of my sermon this morning. And you can thank me later. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. There we read, rejoice always. Pray continually. Actually, I'm going to re- preach on verse 18 as well. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. But I'm going to continue reading. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Let us say a short prayer and ask the Lord for a blessing over his word as we preach. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege of opening your holy and awesome word this morning. We thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit that administers the truth to our hearts. And we pray, O oh God, that by your Spirit we may be convicted and encouraged and comforted by your word this morning. Do a work, an awesome work, a divine work, even in our midst, in this workshop of the Holy Spirit this morning, in our lives, to make us look a lot more like Jesus and to love him more dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So my theme is living uh, between the advents of Christ. And there's three things I want to focus on, but I'm only going to focus on the first one. But you've got to stay tuned now for the next sermon on this. This is going to be part two next week. But a word of encouragement. That's what we're going to focus on today. But there's also a warning, and there's also a prayer. We're going to focus on a word of encouragement. Now, when I use the word, I, I know I'm using a, a, a singular noun and in a plural context. I mean words. <laughs> words of encouragement, really. And here are the words of encouragement. They're action words. They're action. They're verbs. There's three of them. Rejoice, pray, and be thankful. Three simple words. Four. Rejoice, pray, and be thankful. And it's helpful as we enter our text this morning on those, those simple words that we're going to unpack for the next 25 minutes that that they are commands, that these are imperatives, that these are laid upon the church as a command, do this, rejoice, pray, and be thankful, church of Jesus Christ. And if you want to get a little bit more technical because of the grammarians among us, um, these, are, these are not only imperatives, but they're also in the present tense. 
That means they're ongoing actions. You wake up in the morning and you are called to a life of rejoicing or a day of rejoicing. You wake up in the morning and you're called to a day of prayer. You wake up in the morning and you're called to give thanks. That defines our Christian life. That's what Paul's saying. These are the standing orders, you could say, of the gospel. Or as one author put it, these are the ornaments of grace that, that are bound around the neck of a believer. These ornaments of grace, this rejoicing and pray, praying and giving thanks. But, but I want you to think about it for a bit right now as I paused and thought about it much over this past week. In some ways, these are very heavy words to begin with. Because not only does Paul say, rejoice, pray, and be thankful, he modifies each one of those verbs. He says this, always rejoice, unceasingly or continually pray, and in everything give thanks. And in Greek, when you, this is literally, this is literally translating from Greek to English. When you do this, when you put those words like this, always rejoice, when you put a word in the front of a sentence, you want to put onus on that, that word. You want people to remember that they're called to always, unceasingly, and in everything give thanks, pray, and rejoice. This is, well, this is heavy. If this wasn't in the Bible, I would not preach it, of course, but if it wasn't in the Bible, I would not even say these things to you, it seems. As a pastor, it's much easier for me to say something like this, rejoice when there's reason to rejoice. Try to make time every day for prayer. I know your lives are very busy and hectic, but at least try. Give thanks in all that happens in your, in your life. That's good. That's what I want to say to you. That's the easier path to take. But Paul says, every waking hour, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. That's the call on your life. But you're going to ask, does not Paul realize that following Christ Jesus is actually a real test and a struggle? That there are times when the struggles are so hard in this life and so deep and burdensome that it strips you of all joy and all thankfulness. And it's even sometimes very, very hard to pray. Does not Paul know that? Sometimes it's very, very hard to be a Christian. We're going to pray before Lee's baptism that this life is really no more that's little Lee Marshall, by the way, so you all know. We're going to baptize this child soon. That the life is really, that this life is really no more than a constant death. Doesn't Paul know that there's sickness, that there's heartbreak, that there's persecution, that there's rejection, that there's disappointment, that there's loss, that there's death, and that there's grief because of that death? Does not Paul know what some of you are bearing even this morning as you assemble here before me? Well, I want to assure you, loved ones, that the Apostle Paul was not exempt from the troubles and the burdens of life that he had in following Jesus. He did not go to Thessalonica to sit in the hot springs to detox his skin. I learned that there's hot springs there. No, he went to Thessalonica to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, come what may. 
In account of his preaching, he says elsewhere, he suffered intensely for it. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was hungry, he was in danger on the roads and at sea and in the cities. Everywhere he went, he he just was a magnet for pain. This week I read an excellent blog post on, 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 on an Advent day, Friday, by one of our members, Bridget Van, Van Heistede. Almost changed her name. It was on patience and waiting in the season of Advent. And speaking about Paul, she put it this way. She said, Paul must have been the most irritating prisoner <laughs> because he found opportunity and joy wherever he was. A most irritating prisoner. And I agree. And she's writing about Paul's ministry, actually, in the church of Philippi. He, if you know the story there, he came in there, he preached the gospel, he healed this young girl, and, 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 the, and they brought him to court. And this is what we read in verse 23 of, of, of Acts 16. After they had been severely flogged, they didn't like this healing that Paul did and Silas, they were thrown into prison, severely flogged. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Now, this is what it means to guard people carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened. That was the inner cell. And fastened their feet in the stocks. They were severely flogged. If you know anything about flogging, that's a lot of pain. Not treated either. And here we come, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. That's irritating for a non-believer. You see, well, even if Paul, even if Paul struggled with finding joy in all circumstances, and I don't know if he struggled that much actually in this, but even if Paul struggled to finding joy in all circumstances, rejoicing always and giving thanks in all circumstances, you have to understand that this is ultimately not a command from Paul to the church of Thessalonica. This is ultimately a command from the Holy Spirit to the, churches of all, to the church of all ages. The Lord, through the Holy Spirit, has provided a simple command to his church, even to the church at Mercy this morning. Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, Mercy. And, and to prove that this is not from Paul. As if Paul is laying an extra burden on the church of Jesus Christ, he makes these words at the end of our text. He says, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus. For this is God's will for you, not mine. This is the Lord's will that you rejoice and give thanks and you pray constantly. You want to do God's will in your life? You wake up in the morning and you take joy in what he's done. And you pray, and you give thanks. Now, I want to consider how that's possible by an illustration. Two illustrations. The first illustration is how it's possible. The second illustration is an application of, someone who, of people who live that reality out. Here's the first illustration. It's the illustration of the two who are walking to Emmaus after Jesus rose from the dead, but they didn't know it. Two people walking home from Jerusalem, both were grief-stricken and both were confused. We don't know if they're a husband and wife or two friends. It's not, it's not clear. I like what the author Henry Nouwen states about this. He said, it had become clear to them how meaningless their lives really were after all. And they had no security in the resurrection of Christ. They saw their life as meaningless. 
Their hopes were dashed. The joy and anticipation that brought them to Jerusalem just a week before had all but evaporated. The Messiah, the Messiah they loved and they knew. Their only hope for freedom from the Roman occupation and from a normal life was gone. They didn't know where he was. And in that midst of that despair, this man walks up. I don't know how that all happened. But he just begins to walk with them. You know, we were probably social distance now, but that didn't happen back then. He probably walked right up to them. And, and, and we're not to speculate why they don't recognize him, but, but, we, but we know this. He chose not to open their eyes until he opened their, what? Hearts. He chose not to open their eyes until he opened their hearts because the heart is the habitus of joy. You want to find the habitat that where joy is seated and lives and grows. It grows from the heart through the eyes. So he wants to focus on the heart. So he does not open their eyes until he opens their hearts. And how does he open their hearts? Beautifully. He opens their hearts by opening scripture to them. You want to have joy in your life? You need to be in the word of God, loved ones. You need to know this word and you need to understand its promises and you need to see that everything in this book as it is walked through, through, through history is pointing to Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus does, he just does that. It's all up here for Christ. He lived, in some ways he's already lived the whole Old Testament and so he's just pulling the Old Testament truth about Moses and what Moses did and the people of Israel and all the prophets and all the promises that point to the incarnation of him, the Messiah. And he has come and he had to come. And this is what he did. He had to die on the cross. And this is what he had to do. He had to conquer sin and death and, 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 the, and Satan. And he had to rise again. And he shared the whole story with them. Verse 24. Verse 23. 27 it says and beginning with moses and other prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself that would have been a beautiful sermon that morning or that day and jesus kept walking and said no 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 jesus or they know who it was they, they said no guest you need to come into our home here and so he came into their home he took the bread he broke it Immediately their eyes were open and he disappeared. But that was okay that he disappeared because now their joy was complete in who he was. This is what they say in verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked with, while he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? The best way, the best way for these two to describe to Luke, the author of, of Luke, what happened on that road is to say when we, when he talked with us, there was like this fire in our hearts. And I can't, I, I don't have any other words for it. It just was like burning me up in a good way. It was consuming, but it was beautiful. It was just, it was enlightening. It was, it was awesome. Their circumstances did not change. Their living conditions didn't change. They were still living in occupied territories. God, Jesus wasn't promising them money or power or fame or success. None of that had changed. But they said our hearts were just burning within us as he opened scripture to us. 
because they realized the Messiah had come back from the dead. The one who had come back from the dead is the one who brings a living hope to people. He brings joy in his steps. He brings a purpose to our life. It sets hearts on fire when you know who Jesus is and what he's done for you. You see, knowing, loved ones, knowing your Savior is alive. Just knowing that your Savior is alive is greater than any earthly freedom or pleasure that you could possibly find on planet Earth. Knowing that your Savior lives, has, having washed you with his blood, having conquered death, having sealed you for all eternity, is a joy that nothing can eclipse, not even death. You see, Paul met the Savior on the road to Damascus one day as he was on his road to kill Christians, and, and Jesus stopped him in his tracks, and he realized that Jesus is alive, he's Lord of heaven and earth, and because of that, those were his marching orders to go into all the world to tell them about the Messiah who has risen from the dead. He is alive and well. And he says now rejoice always. Why? Because Jesus lives. That's why. Now let's apply that to grief. I do this sensitively, knowing that there are some here who have walked in that valley and are still walking that valley of grief this morning. That's my second illustration to apply this text in all circumstances. I was chatting with my cousin, some of you might know who she is, who works at the trauma unit at McMaster Children's Hospital. That's a picture of McMaster. She shared something with me that surprised me, but maybe it shouldn't have. She said this, she said, when Christians come in and face trauma, like the death of a child. Do you know what the unsaved and the unchurched nurses say? They say with this quiet resolve, they will be all right. These same nurses don't have the same courage to say that when non-Christians come in and face trauma. You see, the nurses witness grief deep-seated grief. But when they look at Christians who have a living hope in the living Christ, they notice that they are not shattered beyond repair. That their marriages don't just dissolve under the weight of the grief. That their lives are mending, but they're mending slowly. They don't always see that. They don't regularly see that with the non-Christians. Their lives don't mend. One other author in our church, Thelma, has written, Thelma Nine has, she has written, because grief and joy hold hands when they're in the grasp of our Heavenly Father. When we're united to God by faith in Christ, grief and joy hold hands. There's tension there. But joy wins. Now, I don't want to diminish the pain that some of you are feeling even right now because of loss. But I want you to know again this morning, there is a Christ, in the Christian faith, there is a joy so deep, a hope so secure, 
a reason for thankfulness so unalterable by the circumstances around us that Paul can say, rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. Because, because of one reason is because this Messiah who was given, gave his life on the cross, he lives. That's why. Loved ones, hear the precious words of our Savior Jesus in, in, in John 16 to 22. He says this, so with you, he says, now, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again. When? After he rose, that's when. And you will rejoice, he says. And then get these words. And no one will take away your joy. awesome but notice what paul does here he sandwiches rejoicing always pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances for that's god's will in jesus christ he sandwiches the the rejoicing and the giving thanks with prayer continually there's a lesson there for us and we're just going to unpack that for the next few minutes it's said that prayer is the fuel that keeps our rejoicing going and engenders constant thanks. Prayer is the fuel. The more prayer, the more rejoicing. But there's a relationship here, an inverse relationship in this way, that the more rejoicing there is, there's more reason for prayer. They work together in tandem. It's a, scientifically, it's a symbiotic relationship. Sometimes my daughter after church says, you use words I don't understand. What are you saying? Why do you, why do you use words like symbiotic? I'm like, I'm sorry. But symbiotic is the best word I could find. But let me explain it to you. A symbiotic relationship is a relationship that both help each other. So we have, here's, here's, a, here's just a little bit of a science class here for our kids. Here's a bee and here's a flower, okay? This is a symbiotic relationship. Why? Because the bee is helping the flower and the flower is helping the bee. The bee is getting all this, what, nectar and pollen from the, from the flower and takes that back to the, the beehive and feeds the colony and blesses us with honey, <laughs> And the bee not unwittingly does this. He takes the, the flower and helps it reproduce because he spreads all the pollen as he, you know, leaves. So the flower is reproducing and the, and, and the bee is getting honey. Well, that's a symbiotic relationship. They need each other. So does rejoicing and prayer need each other. You try to live a life of rejoicing without prayer. You try to live a life of thankfulness without prayer. See how that goes for you. It won't. Prayer is the fuel that keeps us rejoicing. Rejoicing is the, is the thing that keeps us on our knees. So Paul says, always rejoice and pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances. Don't let anything get in the way of your prayers. And as you need to breathe without ceasing, Paul is saying, so followers of Christ need to pray without ceasing. That's the picture that we have in front of us. It's a command, actually. It's a command for all believers everywhere. It implies a few things. I'm just going to walk through some implications of this text of what it means to pray continually, and then we'll close off. Here it comes. It implies that there actually are regular times of prayer in your life. Pray unseasoned. There are going to be disciplined times of prayer in your life, and there should be. Daniel, three times a day, bent his knees and prayed towards Jerusalem and, and, and thanked God for the gift of what he had. And, 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 and we should as well. The, the regular times of prayer, morning, midday, evening, is, is a good discipline to have personally and as a family. 
He's not excluding in this prayer, he's including, I should say, in this prayer time that there is also corporate prayer. We pray as a church congregation on Sundays. We pray after the service. We pray before the service. We try to enclose this whole event, this service, in prayer. And then we encourage you to go out in corporate prayer, to pray with your families, but also to pray with other members of our church. And I am very thankful to be able to say, even this morning, that almost every single day of the week, members are meeting in our church for prayer. That brings me so much joy, but may God be glorified in that. Church members coming together, confessing sin, lifting up the name of the Lord. 5.30 in the morning, or at 6 o'clock in the morning, or at 7 o'clock on Sunday mornings, whatever the times are, you're coming together to pray. Because God wants you to pray continually. But there seems to be more than the regular times of prayer where we bend our knees in prayer. Along with that regular time of prayer, the Christian life is naturally bent on praying to God in an inaudible way. Not all of our prayers. And I think what Paul's including here is most of our prayers are not going to be audible. Spoken. They're just going to flow from our heart. Those are those quiet words of thanks to your father, the immediate intercession for someone when you see a burden, or the groans of the heart that, that, that are too deep for words, that, but that go heavenward. Those things are prayers. Those actions are prayers. I'm reminded of, of Exodus 14, verse 15, where, where Moses is right in front of the, the, the sea, the Red Sea, and he's in great distress. And this is what we read in Exodus 14, verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Well, actually, in Scripture, we have no record of Moses crying out to God. In his heart, he was crying. The people were crying as well. I get that. You see, God does not distinguish between the lips saying it or the heart thinking it. That's all for God, one reality of prayer. God reads your heart. He knows what's in there. You see, a Christian's heart is a heart that has this magnetized needle of a compass. We're, we're like a magnetized needle of a compass that's pointing always to the pole. Well, in, 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 in technically, to the magnetic pole. Here it is. This, is. this is our heart of prayer. Always pointing to the direction of heaven. Always pointing to the direction of Christ. So the Christian constantly orientates his or her life to the one who's created him or her, bought him or her, and sealed him or her for all eternity. That's the, that's the needle in your life, pointing to Christ for what he has done for you, and then communicating with him. The text also implies then that neither voice, nor posture, nor place, nor the time is essential for prayer. Paul is reaching into the very essence of prayer, and, and, and it's like this. You stand before God in, in, in his presence with open hands, naked and vulnerable, proclaiming to him and to others that you cannot do anything without him. It's a statement of dependence to say pray continually. It's like, yeah, I get it. I have no strength in myself to meet the demands of the day, so I'm going to be prayer constantly in prayer, talking to my Father. There's a dependency that is, is realized here. But it also implies another thing. There's a few implications. Here's another one. It implies the important reality for the praying church, and that is this, that there should be no, there's no right to go into any place or be in any situation where you cannot continue to lift up the Lord's name in prayer. We should not enter into places where we can't pray. That's what it implies. 
We'll get a bit into that next week. Watch that your prayers are not hindered by the location or the situations that you're in. Neither do this, and C.S. Lewis has a quote on this about, you know, seeking God's blessings. He says, have nothing to do with that which you cannot ask God's blessing upon. Have nothing to do with it. For if God cannot bless it, you may depend upon it, but the devil has already cursed it. Our prayers, our, our, our walk with the Lord in constant prayer is so that we are walking in step with the Spirit so that prayers are not things that, that this devil has cursed, but, his, but Christ has honored. And it applies one more thing, and I'll close off after this. That when Paul says pray continually, the Holy Spirit is revealing to us that we have a sweet and an undying privilege that allows us to enter the throne room of the Almighty and speak to him as our loving Father. That's implied here. It's as if he is saying to you this morning, my child, and the Lord is saying this, it's as if the Lord is saying, my child, come to the mercy seat whenever you will. Come, my child, to the fountain of mercy, whatever the need. Come to the throne of grace and whatever the circumstance, because my ears are open, I will rend the heavens to come to your aid. You will receive, because of Christ, mercy and grace in your time of need. Come, my child, come to me. This is a blood-bought gift, a privilege of unbelievable proportions to be able to come to the throne room of the Almighty without hindrance, and the Lord is listening. So he says, to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all, all circumstances, because all of this favor, all of this benefit to you, all of this ability to come before him and worship him and thank him has been given, was, has been given to you at the cost of his son. He is the reason for the season. He's also the reason for the rejoicing. He's the reason for the open door of prayer. He is the reason for the unlimited access and the unlimited data that we have to access his throne. He's the reason for it all. So Paul says, pray without ceasing because the Lord never ceases to love you, never ceases to bless you, and never ceases to regard you as, never ceases to regard you as his child. That's why we pray. Shortly now, we're going to witness the baptism of little Lee Marshall. So we'll have a sudden awakening, maybe. But it's in the confidence of our text that we baptize little Lee this morning. In the confidence that we have a God who loves Lee with an infinite love, as he loves Lee's parents with an infinite love, and his grandparents, and his siblings, their siblings. And as he comes of age... Mitch and Deanna, may you share the beauty of this reality to him so that empowered by the Holy Spirit, Lee will be able to say, it is true. Because he lives, I have every reason to live and rejoice in him. And because he lives, I will rejoice in my God, my Savior. One day we want Lee to say, because he lives, I will pray unceasingly to my Father my, and my Redeemer. And because he lives, I will give thanks in all circumstances because I know that that's God's will for me in Jesus Christ. That's our prayer for little Lee. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the exhortation in Scripture that 
is full of um, beauty and power. We thank you, Lord, that we can open your word and know that you love us so intimately. And that this call to rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances and to pray unceasingly is just part of our, of our demeanor, our, our, our disposition even as, as saved people. That we want to be constant in communication with you and we want to be constant in thankfulness to you because of who you are and what you've done. And because you live, O oh Jesus, we also live and have life even in abundance, even in the face of sorrow and sadness. Because the promises are sure, and one day you're coming back to get us so that we can be with you forever. God, we long for that day. Come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.